Section 4 of Jurisprudence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ian Stewart, Rosanna, Victoria, Australia. Jurisprudence by John Salmond. Chapter 3 Other Kinds of Law, Part 1. Section 14. Law in General, a Rule of Action. Having considered in the foregoing chapter the nature of civil law exclusively, we now proceed to examine certain other kinds of law which need to be distinguished from this and from each other. In its widest and vaguest sense, the term law includes any rule of action, that is to say, any standard or pattern to which actions, whether the acts of rational agents or the operations of nature, are or ought to be conformed. In the words of Hooker, we term any kind of rule or canon whereby actions are framed a law. So Blackstone says, Law in its most general and comprehensive sense signifies a rule of action, and is applied indiscriminately to all kinds of action, whether animate or inanimate, rational or irrational. Thus, we say, the laws of motion, of gravitation, of optics or mechanics, as well as the laws of nature and of nations. Of law in this sense there are many kinds, and the following are sufficiently important and distinct to deserve separate mention and examination. 1. Physical or scientific law. 2. Natural or moral law. 3. Imperative law. 4. Conventional law. 5. Customary law. 6 practical law, 7. International law, 8. Civil law. Before proceeding to analyse and distinguish these, there are the following introductory observations to be made. 1. This list is not based on any logical scheme of division and classification, but is a mere simplex enumeratio of the chief forms of law. 2. There is nothing to prevent the same rule from belonging to more than one of these classes. 3. Any discussion as to the rightful claims of any of these classes of rules to be called law, any attempt to distinguish law properly so-called from law improperly so-called, would seem to be nothing more than a purposeless dispute about words. Our business is to recognise the fact that they are called law, and to distinguish accurately between the different classes of rules that are thus known by the same name. Section 15. Physical or Scientific Law Physical laws or the laws of science are expressions of the uniformities of nature, general principles expressing the regularity and harmony observable in the activities and operations of the universe. It is in this sense that we speak of the law of gravitation, the laws of the tides, or the laws of chemical combination. Even the actions of human beings, as far as they are uniform, are the subject of law of this description as, for example, when we speak of the laws of political economy, or of Grimm's law of phonetics. These are rules expressing not what men ought to do, but what they do. Physical laws are also, and more commonly, called natural laws, or the laws of nature. But these latter terms are ambiguous, for they signify also the moral law, that is to say, the principles of natural right and wrong. This use of the term law to connote nothing more than uniformity of action is derived from law in the sense of an imperative rule of action, 
by way of the theological conception of the universe as governed in all its operations animate and inanimate rational and irrational by the will and command of god the primary source of this conception is to be found in the hebrew scriptures and its secondary and immediate source in the scholasticism of the middle ages a system of thought which was formed by a combination of the theology of the hebrews with the philosophy of the greeks the bible constantly speaks of the deity as governing the universe animate and inanimate just as a ruler governs a society of men and the order of the world is conceived as due to the obedience of all created things to the will and commands of their creator he gave to the sea his decree that the waters should not pass his commandment he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder the schoolmen made this same conception one of the first principles of their philosophic system the lex aeterna according to st thomas aquinas is the ordinance of the divine wisdom by which all things in heaven and earth are governed there is a certain eternal law to wit reason existing in the mind of god and governing the whole universe for law is nothing else than the dictate of the practical reason in the ruler who governs a perfect community just as the reason of the divine wisdom inasmuch as by it all things were created has the nature of a type or idea so also inasmuch as by this reason all things are directed to their proper ends it may be said to have the nature of an eternal law and accordingly the law eternal is nothing else than the reason of the divine wisdom regarded as regulative and directive of all actions and motions this lex aeterna was divided by the schoolmen into two parts one of these is that which governs the actions of men this is the moral law the law of nature or of reason the other is that which governs the actions of all other created things this is that which we now term physical law or natural law in the modern and prevalent sense of that ambiguous term this latter branch of the eternal law is perfectly and uniformly obeyed for the irrational agents on which it is imposed can do no otherwise than obey the dictates of the divine will but the former branch the moral law of reason is obeyed only partially and imperfectly for man by reason of his prerogative of freedom may turn aside from that will to follow his own desires physical law therefore is an expression of actions as they actually are moral law or the law of reason is an expression of actions as they ought to be this scholastic theory of law finds eloquent expression in the writings of hooker in the sixteenth century his commanding those things to be which are and to be in such sort as they are to keep that tenure and course which they do importeth the establishment of nature's law since the time that god did first proclaim the edicts of his law upon it heaven and earth have hearkened unto his voice and their labour hath been to do his will see we not plainly that the obedience of creatures unto the law of nature is the stay of the whole world of law there can be no less acknowledged than that her seat is the bosom of god her voice the harmony of the world all things in heaven and earth do her homage the modern use of the term law in the sense of physical or natural law to indicate the uniformities of nature is directly derived from this scholastic theory of the lex aeterna but the theological conception of divine legislation on which it was originally based is now eliminated or disregarded 
the relation between the physical law of inanimate nature and the moral or civil laws by which men are ruled has been reduced accordingly to one of remote analogy section sixteen natural or moral law by natural or moral law is meant the principles of natural right and wrong principles of natural justice if we use the term justice in its widest sense to include all forms of rightful action right or justice is of two kinds distinguished as natural and positive natural justice is justice as it is indeed and in truth in its perfect idea positive justice is justice as it is conceived recognized and expressed more or less incompletely and inaccurately by the civil or some other form of human and positive law just as positive law therefore is the expression of positive justice so philosophers have recognized a natural law which is the expression of natural justice this distinction between natural and positive justice together with the corresponding and derivative distinction between natural and positive law comes to us from greek philosophy natural justice is phonicicom oikuion positive justice is nomicon oikuion and the natural law which expresses the principles of natural justice is phonicicos nomos when greek philosophy passed from athens to rome phonicicom oikuion appeared there as justitia naturalis and phonicicom nomos as lex naturae or jus naturale this natural law was conceived by the greeks as a body of imperative rules imposed upon mankind by nature the personified universe the stoics more particularly thought of nature or the universe as a living organism of which the material world was the body and of which the deity or the universal reason was the pervading animating and governing soul and natural law was the rule of conduct laid down by this universal reason for the direction of mankind natural law has received many other names expressive of its divers qualities and aspects it is divine law jus divinum the command of god imposed upon men this aspect of it being recognized in the pantheism of the stoics and coming into the forefront of the conception so soon as natural law obtained a place in the philosophical system of christian writers natural law is also the law of reason as being established by that reason by which the world is governed and also as being addressed to and perceived by the rational nature of man it is also the unwritten law jus non scriptum as being written not on brazen tablets or on pillars of stone but solely by the finger of nature in the hearts of men it is also the universal or common law coenos nomos jus commune jus gentium as being of universal validity the same in all places and binding on all peoples and not one thing at athens and another at rome as are the civil laws of states ionos nomos jus civile it is also the eternal law lex aeterna as having existed from the commencement of the world uncreated and immutable lastly in modern times we find it termed the moral law as being the expression of the principles of morality the term natural law in the sense with which we are here concerned is now fallen almost completely out of use we speak of the principles of natural justice or of the rules of natural morality but seldom of the law of nature 
and for this departure from the established usage of ancient and medieval speech there are at least two reasons the first is that the term natural law has become equivocal for it is now used to signify physical law the expression of the uniformities of nature the second is that the term law as applied to the principles of natural justice brings with it certain misleading associations suggestions of command imposition external authority legislation which are not in harmony with the moral philosophy of the present day the following quotations illustrate sufficiently the ancient and medieval conceptions of the law of nature aristotle law is either universal koinos nomos or special iunos nomos special law consists of the written enactments by which men are governed the universal law consists of those unwritten rules which are recognized among all men right and wrong have been defined by reference to two kinds of law special law is that which is established by each people for itself the universal law is that which is conformable merely to nature cicero there is indeed a true law lex right reason agreeing with nature diffused among all men unchanging everlasting it is not allowable to alter this law nor to derogate from it nor can it be repealed we cannot be released from this law either by the praetor or by the people nor is any person required to explain or interpret it nor is it one law at rome and another at athens one law to-day and another hereafter but the same law everlasting and unchangeable will bind all nations at all times and there will be one common lord and ruler of all even god the framer and proposer of this law philo eudacus the unerring law is right reason not an ordinance made by this or that mortal a corruptible and perishable law a lifeless law written on lifeless parchment or engraved on lifeless columns but one imperishable and impressed by immortal nature on the immortal mind gaius all peoples that are ruled by laws and customs observe partly law peculiar to themselves and partly law common to all mankind that which any people has established for itself is called jus civile as being law peculiar to that state jus proprium civitatis but that law which natural reason establishes among all mankind is observed equally by all peoples and is for that reason called jus gentium justinian natural law jura naturalia which is observed equally in all nations being established by divine providence remains for ever settled and immutable but that law which each state has established for itself is often changed either by legislation or by the tacit consent of the people hooker the law of reason or human nature is that which men by discourse of natural reason have rightly found out themselves to be all forever bound unto in their actions christian thomasius natural law is a divine law written in the hearts of all men obliging them to do those things which are necessarily consonant to the rational nature of mankind and to refrain from those things which are repugnant to it the jus gentium of the roman lawyers it is a commonly received opinion that jus gentium although identified as early as the time of cicero with the jus naturale of the greeks was in its origin and primary signification something quite distinct a product not of greek philosophy but of roman law 
it is alleged that jus gentium meant originally that system of civil and positive law which was administered in rome to aliens peregrini as opposed to the system which was the exclusive birthright and privilege of roman citizens jus civile or jus quiritium that this jus gentium being later in date than the jus civile was so much more reasonable and perfect that it came to be identified with the law of reason itself the jus naturale of the greeks and so acquired a double meaning one jus gentium viz jus naturale and two jus gentium viz that part of the positive law of rome which was applicable to aliens and not merely to citizens that the term jus gentium did possess this double meaning cannot be doubted but it may be gravely doubted whether the true explanation of the fact is that which has just been set forth it would seem more probable that jus gentium was in its very origin synonymous with jus naturale a philosophical or ethical and not a technical legal term the roman equivalent of the koinos nomos of aristotle and the greeks and that the technical significance of the term is secondary and derivative jus gentium came to mean not only the law of nature principles of natural justice but also a particular part of the positive law of rome namely that part which was derived from and in harmony with those principles of natural justice and which therefore was applicable in roman law courts to all men equally whether cives or peregrini in the same way in england the term equity although originally purely ethical and the mere equivalent of natural justice or jus naturae acquired a secondary derivative and technical use to signify a particular portion of the civil law of england namely that portion which was administered in the court of chancery and which was called equity because derived from equity in the original ethical sense this however is not the place in which to enter into any detailed examination of this very interesting and difficult problem in the history of human ideas section seventeen imperative law imperative law means any rule of action imposed upon men by some authority which enforces obedience to it in other words an imperative law is a command which prescribes some general course of action and which is imposed and enforced by superior power the instrument of such enforcement the sanction of the law is not necessarily physical force but may consist in any other form of constraint or compulsion by which the actions of men may be determined lex says puffendorf est decretum quo superior sibi subjectum obligat ut ad istius prescriptum actiones suas componat a law says austin is a command which obliges a person or persons to a course of conduct laws of this kind are to be classified by reference to the authority from which they proceed they are in the first place either divine or human divine laws consist of the commands imposed by god upon man and enforced by threats of punishment in this world or in the next for example the ten commandments human laws consist of imperative rules imposed by men upon men and they are of three chief kinds namely civil law the law of positive morality and the law of nations civil law consists in part at least and in one of its aspects of commands issued by the state to its subjects and enforced by its physical power 
positive morality, the law of opinion or of reputation, as Locke calls it, consists of the rules imposed by society upon its members and enforced by public censure or disapprobation. The law of nations or international law consists, in part at least and in one aspect, of rules imposed upon states by the society of states and enforced partly by international opinion and partly by the threat of war. Many writers are content to classify the civil law as being essentially, and throughout its whole compass, nothing more than a particular form of imperative law. They consider that it is a sufficient analysis and definition of civil law to say that it consists of the commands issued by the state to its subjects and enforced, if necessary, by the physical power of the state. This may be termed the imperative, or more accurately the purely imperative, theory of the civil law. The civil law, says Hobbes, are the command of him who is endued with supreme power in the city, that is, the state, civitas, concerning the future actions of his subjects. Similar opinions are expressed by Bentham and Austin, and have in consequence been widely, though by no means universally, accepted by English writers. This imperative theory, though it falls short of an adequate analysis, does undoubtedly express a very important aspect of the truth. It rightly emphasizes the central fact that law is based on physical force, for law exists only as an incident of the administration of justice by the state, and this consists essentially in the imperative and coercive action of the state in imposing its will, by force if need be, upon the members of the body politic. It is men and arms, says Hobbes, that make the force and power of the laws. Law has its sole source, not in custom, not in consent, not in the spirit of the people, as some would have us believe, but in the will and the power of him who in a commonwealth beareth not the sword in vain. This, then, may be accepted as the central truth contained in the imperative theory of law, and if this is so, there is no weight to be attributed to that which may be termed the historical argument against this theory. It is objected by some that though the definition of law as the command of the state is plausible, and at first sight sufficient, as applied to the developed political societies of modern times, it is quite inapplicable to more primitive communities. Early law, it is said, is not the command of the state. It has its source in custom, religion, opinion, not in any authority vested in a political superior. It is not till a comparatively late stage of social evolution that law assumes its modern form, and is recognized as a product of supreme power, Law, therefore, is prior to and independent of political authority and enforcement. It is enforced by the state because it is already law, not vice versa. To this argument, the advocates of the imperative theory can give a valid reply. If there are any rules prior to and independent of the state, they may greatly resemble law. They may be the primeval substitutes for law. They may be the historical source from which law is developed and proceeds, but they are not themselves law. There may have been a time in the far past when a man was not indistinguishable from an anthropoid ape, but that is no reason for now defining a man in such wise as to include an ape. To trace two different things to a common origin in the beginnings of their historical evolution is not to disprove the existence or the importance of an essential difference between them, as they now stand. 
this is to confuse all boundary lines to substitute the history of the past for the logic of the present and to render all distinction and definition vain the historical point of view is valuable as a supplement to the logical and analytical but not as a substitute for it it must be borne in mind that in the beginning the whole earth was without form and void and that science is concerned not with chaos but with cosmos the plausibility of the historical argument proceeds from the failure adequately to comprehend the distinction hereafter to be noticed by us between the formal and the material sources of law its formal source is that from which it obtains the nature and force of law this is essentially and exclusively the power and will of the state its material sources on the other hand are those from which it derives its material contents custom and religion may be the material sources of a legal system no less than that express declaration of new legal principles by the state which we term legislation in early times indeed legislation may be unknown no rule of law may as yet have been formulated in any declaration of the state it may not have yet occurred to any man that such a process as legislation is possible and no ruler may ever yet have made a law custom and religion may be all-powerful and exclusive nevertheless if any rule of conduct has already put on the true nature form and essence of the civil law it is because it has already at its back the power of the organized commonwealth for the maintenance and enforcement of it yet although the imperative theory contains this element of the truth it is not the whole truth it is one-sided and inadequate the product of an incomplete analysis of juridical conceptions in the first place it is defective inasmuch as it disregards that ethical element which is an essential constituent of the complete conception as to any special relation between law and justice this theory is silent and ignorant it eliminates from the implication of the term law all elements save that of force this is an illegitimate simplification for the complete idea contains at least one other element which is equally essential and permanent this is right or justice if rules of law are from one point of view commands issued by the state to its subjects from another standpoint they appear as the principles of right and wrong so far as recognized and enforced by the state in the exercise of its essential function of administering justice law is not right alone or might alone but the perfect union of the two it is justice speaking to men by the voice of the state the established law indeed may be far from corresponding accurately with the true rule of right nor is its legal validity in any way affected by any such imperfection nevertheless in idea law and justice are coincident it is for the expression and realization of justice that the law has been created and like every other work of men's hands it must be defined by reference to its end and purpose a purely imperative theory therefore is as one-sided as a purely ethical or non-imperative theory would be it mistakes a part of the connotation of the term defined for the whole of it we should be sufficiently reminded of this ethical element by the usages of popular speech the terms law and justice are familiar associates courts of law are also courts of justice and the administration of justice is also the enforcement of law right wrong and duty are leading terms of law as well as of morals 
if we turn from our own to foreign languages we find that law and right are usually called by the very same name jus dwa recht derito have all a double meaning they are all ethical as well as juridical they all include the rules of justice as well as those of law are these facts then of no significance are we to look on them as nothing more than accidental and meaningless coincidences of speech it is this that the advocates of the theory in question would have us believe we may on the contrary assume with confidence that these relations between the names of things are but the outward manifestation of very real and intimate relations between the things named a theory which regards the law as the command of the state and nothing more and which entirely ignores the aspect of law as a public declaration of the principles of justice would lose all its plausibility if expressed in a language in which the term for law signifies justice also even if we incorporate the missing ethical element in the definition even if we define the law as the sum of the principles of justice recognized and enforced by the state even if we say with blackstone that law is a rule of civil conduct prescribed by the supreme power in a state commanding what is right and prohibiting what is wrong we shall not reach the whole truth for though the idea of command or enforcement is an essential implication of the law in the sense that there can be no law where there is no coercive administration of justice by the state it is not true that every legal principle assumes or can be made to assume the form of a command although the imperative rules of right and wrong as recognized by the state constitute a part and indeed the most important part of the law they do not constitute the whole of it the law includes the whole of the principles accepted and applied in the administration of justice whether they are imperative principles or not the only legal rules which conform to the imperative definition are those which create legal obligations and no legal system consists exclusively of rules of this description all well-developed bodies of law contain innumerable principles which have some other purpose and content than this and so fall outside the scope of the imperative definition these non-imperative legal principles are of various kinds there are for example permissive rules of law namely those which declare certain acts not to be obligatory or not to be wrongful a rule for instance declaring that witchcraft or heresy is no crime or that damage done by competition in trade is no cause of action it cannot be denied that these are rules of law as that term is ordinarily used and it is plain that they fall within the definition of the law as the principles acted on by courts of justice but in what sense are they enforced by the state they are not commands but permissions they create liberties not obligations so also the innumerable rules of judicial procedure are largely non-imperative they are in no proper sense rules of conduct enforced by the state let us take for example the principles that hearsay is no evidence that written evidence is superior to verbal that a contract for the sale of land cannot be proved except by writing that judicial notice will be taken of such and such facts that matters once decided are decided once for all as between the same parties that the interpretation of written documents is the office of the judge and not of the jury that witnesses must be examined on oath or affirmation that the verdict of a jury must be unanimous is it not plain that all these are in their true nature rules in accordance with which judges administer justice to the exclusion of their personal judgment 
and not rules of action appointed by the state for observance by its subjects and enforced by legal sanctions there are various other forms of non-imperative law notably those which relate to the existence application and interpretation of other rules the illustrations already given however should be sufficient to render evident the fact that the purely imperative theory not merely neglects an essential element in the idea of law but also falls far short of the full application or denotation of the term all legal principles are not commands of the state and those which are such commands are at the same time and in their essential nature something more of which the imperative theory takes no account some writers have endeavoured to evade the foregoing objection by regarding rules of procedure and all other non-imperative principles as being in reality commands addressed not to the ordinary subject of the state but to the judges the rule they say that murder is a crime is a command addressed to all persons not to commit murder and the rule that the punishment of murder is hanging is a command to the judges to inflict that punishment with respect to this contention it is to be observed in the first place that no delegation of its judicial functions by the supreme authority of the state is essential there is no reason of necessity why a despotic monarch or even a supreme legislature should not personally exercise judicial functions in such a case the rules of procedure could not be enforced upon the judicature yet it could scarcely be contended that they would for that reason cease to be true rules of law and in the second place even when the judicial functions of the state are delegated to subordinate judges it is in no way necessary that they should be amenable to the law for the due performance of their duties are the rules of evidence for example entitled to the name of law only because of the fact if fact it be that the judges who administer them may be legally punished for the disregard of them it is surely sufficiently obvious that the legal character of all such rules is a consequence of the fact that they are actually observed in the administration of justice not of the fact if it is a fact that the judicature is bound by legal sanctions to observe them end of chapter three part one Recording by Ian Stewart, Rosanna, Victoria, Australia.